Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, one investment that is working today happens to be Trade Desk. The shares are higher by about 2.5%. They gained 12% on the open. And uh, Trade Desk is an online auction platform for digital advertising. Here to tell us about it is the chief executive, Jeff Green. Jeff, thanks very much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Excited to be here. All right. Well, congratulations about today's earnings report. The market seems to be loving it. It's up about your stock is up about two percent after being up more than ten percent in early trading. How do you describe your company to people that are not familiar with the inner workings of internet advertising? You bet. So uh, we essentially help advertisers and especially their agencies buy everything except for Google and Facebook. So there's this giant internet that powers TV and radio and things like Spotify that uh, also have ads on them. Uh, And so instead of just trying to monetize Google and Facebook, we're helping them get ads on the rest of the internet. How do you help them get those ads? Well, so what what they do is they'll come up with the creative, but uh, figuring out like what is Yahoo worth to them compared to what is Spotify worth to them compared to what is uh, CBS.com worth to them is a really hard assignment. So we give them technology that helps them figure out where they should spend and what they should pay and how they should allocate. Now, you have a, a, you're a veteran of the advertising industry. Uh, you sold one company, I believe, to Microsoft. What, the, what propelled you to, to start uh, Trade Desk and how is it different? Yeah, so the last business that I created is uh, was an ad exchange. So you can think of that like the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so we we built this exchange, and once it became inevitable that ads would actually be traded through these exchanges, which, as your listeners know, uh, exchanges are a great great way to get price discovery and liquidity. Once that model became inevitable, what we instead of being an exchange wanted to build was a platform to help people participate on the exchanges. So let's give them the tech so that they know uh, what to buy, where to buy it. And we this, can make more money and add more value there. Well, I'm, I, we're going to, yeah, that's where I want to go with the, with the money be, for a second, because there is a range. For example, uh, I understand, let's say you have inv- advertising inventory that costs uh, $15 per CPU, right? Per thousand uh, impressions. Uh, but let's say you're sold out of that uh, in your ad inventory. What would you do? Well, so it's a really, really big internet, right? So there's uh, uh, if if you didn't have a video available on on Yahoo, um, there will be one on AOL. There will be one on somewhere else. And so one thing that is actually really works in our favor is that we only help buyers. We're just in the business of helping buyers decide what to buy. Uh, So we're on the buy side, and there's a bunch of other companies that focus on the sell side. But because, and unfortunately, all of us as consumers know this, uh, it is actually not that hard to create more supply of ads on the internet. As soon as you get close to sold out, you can just throw another ad on the page 
throw another uh, 30-second spot in a commercial break. And so because of that phenomenon, we've predicted that it will always be a buyer's market because there will always be more supply than there is demand. And as a result, that helps uh, our business always sort of be in the power position. And does that also mean that targeted uh, ads and programmatic uh, uh, content is uh, is worth more uh, to specific advertisers? Oh, without a doubt. In, in fact, that that's the future. So in the future, there will be fewer ads. They will be way more relevant. Consumers won't hate them as much because they'll all be something that they're interested in. That means that advertisers waste less money. It means that publishers make more money. Uh, where the advertising industry is heading, and frankly, where we're taking it, it is uh, a, a much better world uh, than the one that we have today. But with that comes higher prices for, for my clients, which we'll g- gladly pay because it's more effective than the increased cost. Are there any misconceptions, maybe what's the largest misconception that people have about the way the online ad business works and particularly about how the referrals uh, based on your viewing pattern or your activity, the suggested stories, is there something that people really need to know behind the scenes? Um, So I think the biggest thing is just that uh, Google and and Facebook get a lot of credit for being uh, amazing companies. I do think they're unbelievable companies. I mean, Facebook has done a better job of building advertising on ramps. They power millions of advertisers. Google has done uh, the same thing. In fact, I've said many times, I think Google is the greatest invention of our lifetime. It's just changed the way information is distributed. But both of those companies primarily focus on monetizing their own properties, right? They monetize Facebook.com, Google.com, and YouTube.com. And so what many people don't know or, or haven't really thought about is how does the rest of the Internet get monetized? And where we come in is we just say, hey, we're an objective player that doesn't own any media. We don't own Right, you're just working on behalf of your uh, of your clients to place the ads where they where they need to be. Thanks, very interesting. Thank you very much. Jeff Green is the chief executive of the Trade Desk. Uh, you can follow them on the symbol is TTD. The shares of Facebook are up uh, more than forty five percent so far this year. Well, the shares of JCPenney are down more than 16% this morning. And, uh, well, that should tell you almost everything you need to know about the industry. Craig Johnson, though, is here. He's the president of Customer Growth Partners based in New Canaan, Connecticut. And, Craig, all right, so we know that JCPenney is down 16%. We heard the news from Macy's, from Kohl's, from Dillard's. The list goes on. Are we at a bottom? Well, we, we do think the sector's bottoming. Pim is nice to catch up, by the way. And so um, uh, here's a sector that for years has been bleeding market share. Uh, this year, sales are down about 5% year over year to date. Um, uh, and that is while the uh, retail sector overall is growing about 35 maybe 4%. So you do the math. That's, when you're growing 8% slower than the market, you're going to be losing market share. Um, and so uh, we think, however, because many of the stores are taking steps to reduce cost and to shrink their square footage footprint, um, they're able to get uh, costs and, and sales more in line. And when you match up supply-demand, uh, that is the first step to bottoming. And then you got to shrink first and then grow later. 
Who do you believe is doing the best job? Right now, um, uh, you, you, you listed you know, four or five uh, Department of Roosevelt minutes ago, but in this sector, Nordstrom continues to set the pace. Uh, now, the one thing they do share with, with all the other players, whether it's JCPenney or, or Macy's or whoever, is that store-only comps from the full line, the full-price uh, Nordstrom stores, there's about 120 of them, those are still comping negative, slightly negative in, in Nordstrom's sake. Tough to get away from that. But what they've done is Nordstrom.com, the Rack, Nordstrom Rack, the Rack.com, Outlook, etc. They're different portals of reaching the customer uh, uh, are all otherwise positive. And so that's why they, they're able to pull together a you know, pretty solid, positive uh, 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 overall comp at Nordstrom and you know, gave pretty positive signals uh, relative to going forward. All right. So all right, Nordstrom uh, may be an example of, of a leader in how to fix uh, things. Are they also part of this mall, this trend in what's going on in malls? Because you hear about, oh, the mall is dead and so on. But hasn't traffic kind of come back to the mall? Well, that's exactly right. That's what we're seeing. Um, uh, the, the, the mall traffic has been has been uh, declining for you know a good couple of years now, and this year uh, uh, until you know until about the Fourth of July, it was down about six percent by our maybe six seven percent uh, for for traditional malls. Uh, what we have seen is that that six percent hasn't inflected positive. It's not suddenly plus six percent, but instead it's gone from about minus six to about minus three as of July. So again, it, we have to make sure that's sustained over time. But it's some of the best traffic, year-over-year uh, -year traffic that we've seen, um, uh, you know, in, in in going on a year. So it's 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 a positive sign, but by no means are malls out of the woods yet. And back to school, how is that going to play out? Well, the, we're right at the peak of the back-to-school season now. It started in July, and, and it, it, it peaks in, in, in early, mid-August. Uh, and so far, that's actually shaping up pretty well. As, as I'm sure you know, for department stores, it's a key uh, uh, selling season, you know, number two behind um, um, uh, uh, you know, be behind holiday, uh, but for the specialty stores uh, and then the big box stores, which is, such as you know Walmart, you know Target, and so forth, this is a very big season. And so far, you know, it's still you know we're just not quite to the halfway point of it, but it's uh, it it seems to be on track. It seems to be doing pretty well. Well, how do you expect? Uh, I know we're going to get results. Home, the Home Depot, Target, Walmart, and so on. TJX. Uh, what what's your outlook for those companies? Well, we're we're the particular companies you mentioned we're pretty optimistic on and you know one of the things we say to our clients is that don't don't read too much into the overall retail sector from the department stores which are they're only 1.6% of the market but you get companies like you know Walmart and 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 uh uh and and Home Depot and then Lowe's and TJX and Ross uh, all reporting over the next week or so, and the numbers are almost always going to almost going to be uniformly positive. Um, uh, you know, Walmart is, is is slowly coming back to health. It may not be the you know, heady growth days of the early 2000s, but the home improvement guys, Home Depot and Lowe's, Home Depot particularly, and secondly Lowe's are doing quite nicely. And then TJ's, the whole off price sector, and again TJ's and Ross both report this coming week. Uh, they're both going to have a, a, a solid numbers, and that sector. Is is gaining as much share as the department store is losing in, in the apparel arena. Well, just to give the perspective of Walmart shares, they're up seventeen percent so far this year. Uh, Craig, you do a lot of traveling. You do a lot of 
uh, looking and, and talking to people around the world about retail. Can you tell us about some geographical uh, anecdotal information that maybe will highlight trends or tell you what is going on? What have you seen that has caught your attention? Well, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, we have a team of 18 people, you know, here in, in the, across the U.S., and then, you know, one researcher in London. And uh, we're seeing uh, an overall retail sector that seems to be um, coming back into health. Uh, it's maybe not back into full bloom yet, um, but we're seeing some of the best uh, 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 traffic and uh, sales trends that we had in, in some times. The, in the U.S., the growth is relatively balanced. There's maybe a little bit stronger growth in the, uh, uh, on the West Coast, uh, number one, and in the, the whole southern tier, you know, Florida, you know, the, the, the Carolinas, you know, over to Texas, et cetera. And that's where, where a lot of the, you know, the really most robust growth has been. But, you know, the Northeast, is, it's not like the Northeast or the Midwest are down. It's just that the, the other sectors that, that I mentioned are, are you know, really, uh, um, you know, really coming on quite strong. What about merchandising, the actual merchandise, the trends, the fashion? Is there something in particular other than a new iPhone that you've seen that people really want? Well, the, the single hottest item right now, um, it, it is in the electronics sector, and that's the Nintendo Switch. And so that continues to be in short supply. This is whether you try to get a Best Buy or, or Target or Walmart, and they simply have not been able to keep up with the demand. That's, that's proven to be a real hot number. Uh, in the fashion arena, you know, we're, we're getting towards the end of the summer now, but it's been a very good sandal season. Um, there's something called the cold shoulder look uh, uh, that a lot of the uh, uh, women, including younger women, are, are, are going for. Can that. you tell us where did that come from? And, and maybe define it for those that I don't know. What, what it means is it's a garment. It's a top, um, although it could be addressed, that where the shoulders are exposed, um, but fabric continues you know, down your, you know, down your arm at right. least some distance. So there's a, it's like there's a cutout around your shoulder. Um, and where did that come from? <laughs> you, you've now moved beyond my pain. Yeah. Rate. Okay. <laughs> but this is this is the hot trend. It, it, it's something, but right now it, it's been out there for about a year now, and sometimes these trends come and go. So we're anticipating that one. That one may not make it very far into the fall or winter, I'll put it that way. No, clearly. Well, the winter's not going to make it happen. And what's the last thing that uh, Craig Johnson bought for himself? I never buy anything for myself. I, I mean, a pair of socks or something. No, I, just, I, 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 buy, I buy a few things here and there. I, I'm not a big shopper. I'm in retail, but I hate shopping. <laughs> well said. Craig Johnson is the president of Customer Growth Partners. He joins us from New Canaan, Connecticut. President Donald Trump stepping up his campaign of pressure on North Korea, warning the regime not to follow through with a missile test near Guam and promising massive response to any strike against the United States or its allies. Here to tell us more is Bill Ferries. He is our national security reporter for Bloomberg News, and he joins us from Washington, D.C. Bill, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, can I just pick up on this idea of allies? Uh, sure. Because I'm wondering, you know, we hear, obviously, the response from uh, President Trump, but uh, what has been the position uh, of the U.S. allies that are in the region, South Korea, Japan, and so on? Sure. Thanks for having me, Pam. Uh, the initial reaction this week as all of this started to heat up was really um, 
uh, a little more muted. Uh, I think there's still uh, and, and actually you're seeing that from some of the president's aides as well. There's still this idea that, hey, it was a it was just a week ago that the U.N. Security Council, you know, unanimously passed uh, these much tougher sanctions on North Korea. Diplomacy seems to be working. Um, let's give that a little bit more time. Um, and obviously, you know, a, a thing like sanctions, that does take a while to uh, to take effect. So I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of people have been caught off guard by this public war of words. Uh, some analysts we talk to will say that uh, that Trump's comments and, and actually the North Korean comments, that these are a lot of signaling to uh, to China to really get much more engaged. And as we know, the president has really uh, publicly pressured tri- China to do all it's all it can to uh, rein in the North Korean regime. Bill, what are the relationships like between South Korea, Japan, China, uh, the United States, Australia, of course, involved, the Philippines there? What kinds of relationships exist that could uh, make this uh, situation a little less uh, less fraught? Well, the United States is really kind of the glue that uh, that keeps uh, South Korea and Japan um, in, in this alliance. Uh, the Australians have already come out and said that you know they will uh, they will support the U.S. in any kind of a conflict there. The U.S. you know every year regularly hosts a lot of military drills with its uh, allies in Southeast Asia. I believe some of those are actually scheduled and they've been long scheduled, but they're they're scheduled for next week. Uh, a lot of effort goes into kind of uh, getting the militaries to be able to communicate and coordinate together so that they're ready if this kind of a situation um, takes place. Now, I would just point out, you know, I, I realize tensions are high and the war of words has, has gotten pretty heated. Um, but, you know, one one sign to me that there's no sort of imminent conflict is that Secretary uh, Defense Secretary Mattis has been on this tour of the West Coast uh, in Seattle. He was with Amazon in uh, in in uh, Silicon Valley today. I think he's going to Google's headquarters. He has not cut short this trip. Uh, he's continuing on with a focus on technology issues. If he were to suddenly jump on his plane and have, you know, flown back to Washington, I'd be a lot more alarmed about what's going on at this point. Not to minimize the situation we're in, but that's, you know, one of these things that people should uh, keep their eyes on. Well, indeed. I mean, he was speaking at a Pentagon facility in Mountain View, California, and I believe he said that diplomatic efforts are, quote, gaining traction. Uh, so there is a lot of diplomatic activity that we do not know about. Is that correct? Well, exactly. I think it was it was a little unclear. I think he was partly referring to the U.N. sanctions just last weekend. Uh, we do know that Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., will be meeting with President Trump in New Jersey today. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about what, what they may be discussing, but it would, would not be surprising at all if there's a little bit more of an effort at the, uh, at the U.N. to uh, keep keep everyone on board and uh, and to look at any other potential measures. Uh, the president's tweet this morning that uh, the United States, you know, is locked and loaded. Uh, I, you know, I, I would add to that, too, that he said, if Kim does anything, we're ready. Um, it, to me, that was a sign that the U.S. is not looking at some sort of a preemptive strike. Now, as someone that, you know, you, you've lived and traveled all over the world and you have a perspective that is not just, let's say, uh, U.S.-centric, what do countries or diplomats that you've been able to uh, uh, you know, ascertain, what has been their reaction to this, uh, this situation? Because, I mean, this is not the kind of thing that just ends up being contained in a small part of the world, perhaps. Right. I think there's just a lot of surprise at uh, the president's strategy, if we want to call it that, I guess, uh, to be so public. I mean, and, 
every U.S. president, every administration going back for 20 years has dealt with some very uh, over-the-top rhetoric and taunting from North Korea. And they've tended to ignore that in the past or, you know, let it reflect a lot more on uh, North Korea than on anyone else. I think everyone's just uh, surprised that for the first time we're seeing a U.S. president coming out so aggressively uh, in a style that really, to some, looks like the, the communication style of the North Korean regime. And just to uh, give us the update, I mean, what kind of resources, military resources currently exist or may be uh, even threatened by North Korea? Because uh, I believe the president even tweeted something from the U.S. Pacific Command today about uh, B-1 bombers. Sure. Uh, you know, I, as far as we can tell, there hasn't been any significant deployment of new forces to the region. So the president tweeted about the B-1 bombers in Guam. Uh, those have long been stationed there. Uh, they replaced a, uh, a squadron of B-52 bombers that were uh, that uh, kind of got phased out. Uh, you know, the military has has forces deployed all through the Pacific and through Southeast Asia. There's, I think, uh, about 30,000 U.S. troops in South Korea. Uh, we have uh, a lot of naval forces that uh, go through that region. You might remember, I think, earlier this year, it may have been in March or April, when tensions heated with North Korea, the president deployed, very publicly said he was deploying a new a second aircraft carrier battle group to the region. Right. And then we found out a nuclear submarine was also in the region. We found out because the Pentagon basically put out a statement saying a nuclear sub just docked. we got to uh, leave it there. But thank you very much for your thoughts and your insight. Bill Ferries, our national security reporter for Bloomberg News. There is nothing small when it comes to the price of collectible cars. And Frank Meekum is the director of consignment of Meekum Auctions, and uh, they are scheduled to have the uh, Monterey, Meekum Monterey, and they will be presenting a daytime auction that will take place between August the 16th and the 19th at the Hyatt Regency Monterey Hotel and Spa. And he joins us now to tell us more. Frank, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with me. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Where do you want to start? Let's start with cars, okay? I mean, I'm, I've been looking at this 1965 Ferrari Long Nose, and that's just one of the Ferraris that you've got. How many do you have going on the auction block? We're going to have over 40 Ferraris uh, hit the block in Monterey. Uh, that's a neat car, a uh, neat story behind that uh, 275 Long Nose. It's, it's a car that's been in the same ownership for over 45 years. And in the collectible market, you know, you don't see many cars that are, that are coming off that long of ownership. What are the estimates for this? Uh, like $2 million? Car like this should be somewhere right up at two million. Two, we're estimated at one point nine to two point two. Now you mentioned the pedigree of the automobile that it was in a single owner's hands for forty five years. Maybe just tell people the pedigree is relevant, uh, the mileage is relevant, what they call matching numbers. How does this all fit, figure into the actual value of uh, of this asset? There's there's so many things to start looking at as when you get to the pecking order of uh, where a car fits into uh, the collectability standpoint. And the one thing I tell people, the you can't uh, 
ownership history and being in long-term, well-known collections is one of the best things to have for for any car. Um, For one person to have it, it it really solidifies that there's – there's no stories behind the car, and, and it is what it is. Well, one story behind a group of cars that I think are coming up to auction there is uh, the rock star, late rock star Jay Giles. Tell me about that collection. Uh, you know, everybody knows uh, Jay Giles as the rock star, but in our hobby, he was known as one of the top Ferrari mechanics of his time. Um, and sport car mechanics. So that was his other real passion, and uh, to be able to offer his his collection after his passing uh, is really special to our company, and we're really excited to be able to do it this year. Uh, one of the automobiles, a 61 Ferrari 250 GTE. Neat car, uh, another neat Ferrari. Uh, you know, when when you're talking uh, Ferraris, it's it's really a entry level collectible in that uh, two seventy five to three hundred range. You know, a lot of those sixties Ferraris, you start getting into seven figure cars. And what do you find? Because like, I know he's also got so he got a Ducati, so he's also got uh, motorcycles, and I believe what racing suits. I mean, so the whole memorabilia and collectibles is not just in the automobile. It's it's everything. It's it's everything that he put together over the years. He was into so many different things: uh, sports cars, sports bikes, uh, racing. Uh, just just a lifetime of collecting. So what have you seen in the market? Because we ran an article in Bloomberg Business Week saying that in certain areas of the collectible car market, there's a little bit of softness. There's There's been a little bit of softness in uh, certain areas, but we've also seen a lot of growth in certain areas. Uh, the American American built market right now is on fire. Uh, we just had our sale in Harrisburg last week, and we sold two... Uh, two Mopar wing cars um, for for very high prices that cars like that haven't seen in uh, eighteen months. All right. Well, good luck with the uh, with the auction and good luck with the uh, the sixty five Ferrari. Much appreciated. Frank Meekum is the director of consignment for Meekum Auctions, and that auction takes place in Monterey, California, August sixteenth through nineteenth. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.